HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian sitting areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when their travels bring them to Washington. For more information, visit www.tabardinn.com. Food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Um, it's winter, but it, it's pretty nice outside today. Much better than that wintry mix we had last week. Taping in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, I'm very happy to have uh, a few people. Rick Ellis, uh, Beth Galton, and Francine Madelon Denis. I want to thank Charlotte Druckmann, who's been a guest actually on the food scene before um for actually bringing this show to light uh it's we're going to talk about this article that francine wrote for gastronomica and this last summer about trends in food photography uh francine's a food stylist beth is a food photographer rick is uh, a food stylist. oh sorry francine is a prop stylist (laughs) um and we're going to explain those differences too because you know, people need prop stylists, and th- th- this is a charge for more people to, you know, understand and hire a prop stylist because they are a very vital part to a shoot. Um, but she wrote this great article for Gastronomica about the trends in food photography, and it's not just about the last, you know, three decades and how that aesthetic has changed, but relative back to kind of the political, you know, climate and the societal aesthetic. Um, so thank you all, first of all, for being on. Um, and I'm kind of going to hand this off to Francine about what was the impetus for this article or this argument? Well, it was because of things that I was noticing when I was looking through food magazines, uh, especially during uh, the Bush administration and 
the Afghanistan war. And I was noticing how the composition in these photographs were becoming very unsettling. Things were photographed in a way where objects were juxtaposed in compositions that were very askew, and you really couldn't see the food. Um, Things were overpropped. There were lots of different kinds of pattern on pattern on pattern. And it reminded me of not being able to see the truth of the matter because you couldn't see the food anymore. Yeah. And then I was thinking about how it was when I first started doing prop styling where we weren't really setting the table. We were setting the mood. And all of our props were sort of these things that I refer to as toys. Um, we were putting cookies in, in little cute suitcases. We were surrounding plates with ribbons and croquet mallets and books on <laughs> yeah. butterflies. Because who doesn't eat with a croquet mallet? Right, right, right. right. But, you know, we were making these fantasy palettes yeah. for food photography. And just back into relation, who was president when you... Uh, Reagan and the first Mr. Bush. Yeah. And uh, it was fantasy land. Yeah. So, I mean, with Reaganomics going into uh, original GW, um, I mean, George Bush, there was also a lot of conspicuous expenditure. There was a lot of, you know, lavishness or money being thrown about from three martini lunches to what seems like the actual props of these shoots themselves. Things were expensive. I remember when I would show my table of props, people would say, you must live in such an incredible apartment. And I would say, do you think I could afford these (laughs) these props? Because, you know, we were going to the best of stores. We were getting things from the A&D building where, you know, a a consumer could not go to that building. You had to be a designer or be in the industry. Is that the A&D building in the 50s? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is what we were showing our readers, and um, I, re- I think it was past being aspirational. I remember doing a shoot for New York Magazine, and it was a bolito misto from one of the big Italian restaurants, and it was on a $35,000 silver bucciolato platter. <laughs> so you print five? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what is bolito misto? Um, it's a boiled meal. Yeah. Um, everything from the meats, the vegetables, and it's grand presentation. Yeah. Because that's what I want to put on $35,000 anything. Silver. Yeah. Silver platter. Yeah. But I, or you know, being who I am, you know, I was sort of a renegade. And I didn't like all of that perfection. And I didn't like all of that looks. And I always wanted to juxtapose it with something that was gritty and edgy and earthy and more organic and I have to say that it was so much fun to try to find those things because I would be allowed into the basements of antique shops and I would look at all of the broken items that were in the basement and haul them up you know and then of course there was always the dumpster yeah Um, there's a point in the article which I you know noted on the side Um, where do you get your props and that was pretty much after you said from the outgoing trash of a favorite Spanish antique store or at an upstate New York yard sale um, and, you know, question whether or not this was kitsch or, you know, it was there for the picking. Now, I want to involve Rick and Beth a little bit, too. Um, Beth's photographs, uh, from what I've seen, website, 
or these beautifully composed, but a lot of the time singular elements of the food. Um, even though some of the earlier stuff that you did with corporate clients involved a little more propping. Do you find it more organic now to draw these things that people find rather than go and source these like very elaborate $35,000 vases? Um, um, in terms of picking props, yeah. um, you know, I, I have the luxury of being able to say to the prop stylist, I have this idea, what's your idea? And they, yeah. and they kind of expand upon it. Um, and it's interesting because when I first started, which was, you know, the same time as you, almost right. over 30, just about 30 years ago, my photo, I was known for these very elaborate photographs. Yeah. I had many elements in it. And as time has evolved and, and photography has evolved, everything's become more and more singular. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Oh, but, no, no, completely. But, but uh, you know, I, you know it, for me... I get an assortment of things, and then it's kind of whatever strikes my fancy and what the prop styles and I think works together well. And, you know, it can come from anywhere or anything. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it keep, it, you know, the aesthetic keeps on looking like it's getting more minimal and sparse. But really, I think organic's a great sense, a uh, great word to describe how food imagery is going towards. And it's not just with, you know, like farm to table and knowing local sourcing, etc., um, but that goes with the props, too, now. It seems like before, with croquet mallets, that didn't really... <laughs> right. You know? How, how many people are playing croquet right now in right. Brooklyn? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, right. Yeah. And and there is sort of this Brooklyn hipster look, I think, that's yeah. coming into a lot of food photography. Yeah. Um, these sets sort of look like someone went to the Brooklyn Flea and, and got a few things and mixed it with Grandma's old bowl that they have in the house and slapped it down. Yeah. Um, so it's becoming a little more casual again, but it's also becoming a little more propped than it was maybe five years ago mm-hmm. when things were so clean and so sleek. White on white on white. Right. And I was going to bring up George Bush. Um, <laughs> why was it like that during the Bush administra- uh, administration? Well, white on white really started, I think, before, yeah. even before the Bush administration. Um and I think it also has something to do with the technology and with the way we look at photographs and how much we can how much we can actually look at at one time. Yeah. And I think with things being so sped up, you know, you just want that flash of, of a quick message. Um, but there are also a lot of people who were chefs who came into food styling. And they like their white plate. Yeah. They like that canvas yeah. right. them to but, create on. But I also think you can give Donna Hay. Like, right. Really, you know, it really started in Australia. Yeah. Yes. You know, when it came to America, we kind of, like, everybody was like, oh, look at this book. Yeah. You know, so I think that that really influenced a, a whole new genre of photography at that time. Yeah. And, Rick, do you have a background in cooking prior to food styling? Did yeah. you work as a chef? Yes. Catering and, and design school before that. So. Yeah. Uh, sort of the combination led me into food styling. Yeah, yeah. And so speaking of Donna Hay, what were her aesthetics? Just clean, white, clean, bright. Clean, bright light, uh, simple propping, uh, very few uh, toys, you know, yeah. what I call it. Almost, you, you, you might no see a, Yeah, you might see a string in a photograph of raw meat that's coming out of its wrapper. Yeah. 
But it's interesting that, you know, Martha Stewart picked up so much on that Donahue aesthetic. The great appropriator. And, <laughs> and that happened during a time where, where women were working and cooking and we had to make things simpler. And I think in our photographs also telegraphed that the things on your table were simpler. Yeah, and was this Clinton administration? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think his, you know, his administration that really respected families. Yeah. You know, also respected people who were preparing food for the family. Yeah, and the way they ate too. I remember well, it was after what his first heart attack that it was the big push against McDonald's. But I really do think it changed how people, you know, envision food or look at food and did get into the magazines and did get into styling. Well, there was a big change, as Francine talks about in the article early on, of more elaborate presentation of food, props, everything. And then the food became simpler, more natural, seemingly natural sometimes. (laughs) Um, And that was a big influence of Donahue as well, the stuff unfussed with. If it had a burnt spot, that was fine, or crispy bits, or... um, no garnishing, minimal, yeah. just just the food. But don't, don't you think also that um, the whole uh, category of food styling changed at that point? Because uh, yes. a lot of the food styles had come out of test kitchens and had worked for uh, Pillsbury and Kraft. So, and the whole idea was the food was going to be perfect. Yeah. You know, every potato was arranged perfectly. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had food stylists who, became, who were coming out of the design world, like you were trained as a designer. That, that and I didn't come up through that field. Yeah. Of, of, the I never home trained economist. The, the old, yeah. So, so it just became looser. Yeah, and there was, was a whole great. group of us that sort of started at the same time. Right. Yeah. I think had a... Do you think it made the change. consumers feel like it was more attainable, like it was replicable? Because prior to that, I mean, I couldn't make the cheese on a grilled cheese from Kraft look like that if I tried a thousand times. <laughs> That's a very difficult yeah, thing to exactly. do, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> No, but when when you saw that perfection in editorial pages, I think a lot of people were banging their heads against the wall trying to do that. Yeah. And and would make projects out of doing that, too. Like when people would read Gourmet magazine in the 80s and then spend the weekend buying all those ingredients and tr- and cooking those elaborate meals. Yeah. Rick, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you do the grilled cheese? <clears throat> uh, the bread is toasted separately. Yep. Each slice after it's sorted to make sure you've got the perfect bread. Yeah. Those are grilled. Then the cheese is actually cut into the shape of the melts mm-hmm. um, and um, then put into the sandwich and then either reheated with steam or gently heated on the griddle. And that gives you just a very slight melt, but it looks like it's more melted than it actually is. How long did that take? You could take about 30 to 40 minutes to build yeah. a sandwich like that. How does steamed grilled cheese sandwich taste? <laughs> <laughs> You're not eating those. No, so. no. <laughs> So, I mean, from that perfection, that is then going into Clinton, where it was more familiar and accessible for, you know, the common man. Um, what else shifted in, you know, food photography and styling and prop styling? Well, it's interesting because one of the things I did when I was writing the article was I took um, the December and April issues of Bon Appetit for about a 10-year span. And... While Clinton was president and they did their Easter dinners and their Christmas dinners, there was an abundance there, um, but it was an earthier abundance. Um, it wasn't, you know, there weren't gilt surfaces. There were 
woods and, and there was rattan. And I remember looking at an Easter shot of, um, of bowtie macaroni, which has so much texture to it, yeah. which was on a plate with texture, which was on a liner, which was on a rattan placement that was on a rattan table. And it was so abundant and there was so much to look at and little narcissus flowers in the background that repeated the shapes of, of the little bowtie pasta. And then I looked at uh, an Easter dinner five years later, and everything was so reined in and uh, on white and so simple. And I think that it was during a time where people who were coming of age knew about abundance, but knew that they could not attain that abundance as easily as people could during the Clinton administration. Yeah. And it was interesting that you noted that there were a lot more textures. Um, it seemed like there was also this shift to what were toys before, mm-hmm. uh, to non-utilitarian vessels. Like, it wasn't just a plate at a certain point. It was, you know, a texture. Um, you had mentioned in your article a whole bunch of things, like from initially maps, playing cards, strands of silk ribbon, you know, uh, game pieces. Right. Then eventually w- went towards uh, um, to wrought iron gates, uh, um, broken slabs of marble, stone pediments, and uh, weathered wooden doors. So one was fantasy, one was functional, but not necessarily in that setting. Do you think that was akin to any kind of political climate at the time? Well, you know, I write about how when Martha Stewart uh, came out, we sat back down at the table again. And um, we weren't setting the mood anymore. We were setting the table. And that's when we started getting real again. And, you know, you would pull your hair out of your head thinking, okay, I've got, I've got the plate, I've got the napkin, I've got the flatware, I've got the glass. Now what can I use? Yeah. You know, um, because... And natural light was coming back in the play. Right, right. But then I think the focus was then more on food on, again. Right, yeah. right. That now the focus headed back to food, not what was around the food. Right. I, I think that's right, too. Now, actually, Beth, when you shoot in the past 30 years, what has felt the most real? And I mean that in the sense of, like, natural daylight um, and that you'd sit down at the table afterwards. What seems the least constructed uh, genre of, like, food photography? In terms of lighting or in terms of across the, Yeah, across the board, because it seems like a lot of these elaborate setups did take hours upon hours and just got to a point where they just didn't feel real anymore and you were taking these little clippets but now a lot of natural daylight has just let the set be the set well first of all believe it or not like probably 95 percent of my work is all lit. yeah i don't use any daylight although i I can i certainly light with daylight i have stuff for myself that i do all the time um it's just by lighting with tungsten lights it's very predictable i know i can get it yeah um, but I think that spontaneity is really the thing that makes it the most real. It's it's really about you just kind of throw it down there, you kind of arrange it, and it's usually the best. Yeah. And then And then you have to prevent yourself from destroying it or <laughs> somebody else destroying it, right? I mean, it, then it's the battle. Yeah. Well, there was also a way of propping where you could prop in a very spontaneous way because you were given a budget to be able to do that. And and. You could prop in, a, in an organic way and look at something and say, wow, that's a great 
piece. I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but I know I need that for this shot. And then it would happen on set. And it was wonderful. But as budgets became smaller and smaller, you know, once you had your food on a vessel, you had to be careful where you were putting those dollars, too. And you couldn't get all that great stuff that you used to be able to get. Yeah. Wow recession, thank you Um, We're going to take a quick break And come back to uh, Maybe talking about the Obama administration Which we're all happy to Seem to have here And proliferating our food magazines You've been listening to the Food Scene On Heritage Radio Network We'll be right back Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Francine Matalon-Denis, a wonderful prop stylist and author of a piece in Gastronomica about the trends in food photography with her friends, uh, Beth Galton, a food photographer, and Rick Ellis, food stylist extraordinaire. Now, the idea behind the article was to correlate the trends in food photography with politics or political regimes um we a natural correlation yeah a, na- a natural not force at all yeah I it mean, just sort of happened yeah so what happened when obama got elected well at first everyone was propping with yellow because that was our color of hope yeah and optimism and it really was amazing how many magazines had their cover stories and their main food wells propped in yellow. Um, but other things were were happening as well. Like when we look at Bon Appetit magazine, I think because of things that they were going through, trying to get a younger audience as well as keeping their older audience, I think a lot of compromises were being made. And it was funny how... S- you know, as the Obama administration tried and tried and tried to do what he wanted to do, he had to compromise also. And, you know, it's like whenever I'm on a set and people are compromising, I always feel like, uh-oh, something wrong is, gonna, is going <laughs> on here. You know, you, you really need to have that eye that, that says, okay, this is how it's going to look, you know. 
Um, otherwise, your message gets watered down. Yeah, I think things are very confused right now. Yeah. That's the feeling I get, um, not only in my own work and what I'm doing for clients, but the things I look at. Look at that December cover of Bon Appetit, that cake. I mean, talk about a throwback. And it was. Yeah. They said it was a cover they'd done years ago. Oh, that was the one with the lace on the, the top? The yeah. ribbon. Yeah. The big chocolate cake with the yeah. ribbon. I thought that was a very interesting um, decision decision and choice, you know, to redo that, especially now. Yeah. It, well, I mean, talk about, you know, pairing with the political climate, the the things that have happened to Condé Nast with losing Gourmet and then most recently changing um, the heads of Bon App. I mean, they have a new editor-in-chief. They have, you know, tons of new people in there. Um, do you think they're going to get rid of the retro and go fresh forward? I mean, what do you hope out of them and what do you hope out of politics right now? Well, I think it also depends on what you want from looking at a food photograph. Yeah. And do you want to look at a photograph that is showing you gorgeous food that you can make easily? Are you looking at it for fantasy? Um, are you looking at it because you're going to have a big party and, and you want to know what to make? I, I think that has something to do with it. And from what I recently read about where Bon Appetit is going, um, they're trying to get an audience that is that wants to do a great dinner party and have their friends over and have a really nice experience. So I think they're going to go more lifestyle yeah. um, than those, you know, close-up shots of food. But there will probably be a mix. Yeah. And talking about politics, do you think that communal approach is happening more and more in this administration, realizing that there is all this bipartisanism and that they have to pull back a little bit and, you know, like, Obama was just recently saying um, and is speaking about on the State of the Union tonight about, you know, reaching over to the other side and working with each other. Um, there seems like there's less and less pretense and more of this understanding of people actually having to work together. Um, do you, are you seeing that more and more uh, on sets or through food photography? I mean, it's always, for me, it's always a challenge because you have many people who have their own agendas. Yeah. And you have the marketing people that market things up the wazoo. You know, they're always, it tested this, this, this. And then you have the visual people like us who are like, well, I think this looks great. And this is going to make me want to buy it or eat it. Yeah. So it's always that fine juggle of um, making sure that you hear what the other people say, the marketing people, kind of trying to take that in and then, Twisted in a way so that it still can live within the real world, within the creative world of something that you really want to eat or yeah. really want to do or you know whatever it is. So it's really a juggle. That at least that's what I find. I find that's probably fifty percent of my job is kind of navigating all those people and it's, trying to put it together. And, and we're talking about two different worlds here in a way yeah. because Beth and I do a lot of advertising work, and that's a very different mm -hmm. realm from the editorial world, uh, right. magazines, Bon Appetit. Um, um, the edible magazines, um, Martha and it, Stewart. Uh, so, and there's a lot of conflict within those two areas, even though they overlap in a lot. Um, and it, it's really interesting because, like at the beginning of the article, I say, "What does a prop stylist do?" And it's sort of like you're you're you are assigning a meaning to an object that fulfills the insight or the dream or whatever it is that an art director and a marketing person 
wants to have fulfilled. And you can go out there for like a packaging job where they're going to shoot cereal in a white bowl and get 32 white bowls on that set. And a marketing person will take two seconds to tell you why none of those white bowls are the right white bowl. And they've tested it. And they know that a bowl that has a quarter-inch thickness to its wall is testing differently than a bowl that has an eighth-inch thickness to it. Or a blue-white is different from a yellow-white. I remember being told once coffee cups weren't enough General Foods International coffee. Not not Jiffic enough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the other thing, too, I think what what I find interesting, because I I do mainly advertising, but but I have done... editorial over the years is that it seems like the editorial world has shifted more towards the advertising world also like when you work for real simple they come in with a color scheme like they every every um uh, every magazine they do they pick out all the colors they're going to do and the prop stylist is given a palette right. to work you with have them. your pantone colors right so that so the worlds have kind of come closer together in terms of how closely they don't just wing it like we used to wing it yeah you know the, you know and it, advertising has tried to loosen their looks to be more editorial over the years yeah so. yeah so that they're kind of coming more closely together yeah. in a way in across the way. aisles maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. and that seems to come and go too where where the advertising people want to emulate the editorial side of it and then there's like a, a pullback. Well, that, what they always do is they pick out the most creative image in your book and they say, that's what I want. And then you get on set and they don't want that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, well, didn't you say you want that, right? And, I, and then you kind of weave your way back and yeah. you find the middle ground. But So I want to highlight the idea of a prop stylist um, because I haven't worked with a ton. I've worked with a few and it's a great luxury. Um they set that foundation. When you were speaking of, you know, having all these bowls and colors, I always equated in my head to building a restaurant that, you know, there has to be a foundation, interior designer, someone to build the restaurant, and the food stylist has to put the food in the restaurant, and the photographer has to come and capture the restaurant and show it to everybody else, and then it can be a successful restaurant. But without all these parts, right? it isn't. And a lot of the time, the idea of both prop stylists and food stylists are overlooked. Um, but that it takes more than just a clear vision to, you know, show an overall vision. I'm, I'm only as good as the parts. Yeah. If I don't have good parts, my photos aren't great. I mean, I can light oh, it. please. <laughs> I, I, can, I can light it, but, I, but if I don't have something great to photograph, it's not going to be great. Yeah. I've always had a, a, a good stylist prop and food stylist can make a mediocre photographer look good, but it's very <laughs> difficult the other way around. I mean, you know, if you don't have... The good support it's very hard to get a good photograph yeah yeah but i mean it's also that idea of delegation um where not to bring it back to politics but right i i truthfully am is the idea of understanding who is the best at these things and you know that you have to sometimes give up a little bit of power uh to realize things will get done better in someone else's hands uh, but in a way i see excuse me <clears throat> i see it not as giving up power but it's, you know, it's like the ultimate power because you get to have all these people give you their ideas. I feel like a little princess. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and they come and they say, well, what about this? What about that? And then you go, I like that idea. I like that. Let's, let's put it all together. And it's, it's so much better than having to come up 
all of it by yourself. Yeah. And because, you know, you're working by yourself when you're, like, as a prop stylist, when you're gathering these things, and, and you have a vision in mind of what you want to go with what for each set that you're doing. It's so much fun, though, to see how someone else will just pull something from one of your sets and take this plate and put it with that napkin and put it on that background, and you're like... Wow, yeah, that's really great. That really works nicely. Or even the food stylist gets involved, and I'll walk up and say, well, this food would really fit on this better, I think, than, you know, on X rather than Y. Um, you right. Know, or there's this color in here I think we might, you know, I mean, it is it is a group effort when it comes to those decisions. Yeah, it really is. And, and even the way, like, food stylists would react to props has really changed over the years in, in terms of being willing to take a chance with something that you might not have thought would work. You know, being able to put French fries into a cup so that they're vertical instead yeah. of horizontal. You know, I mean, I remember on one of my very early jobs, um, we were shooting chicken breasts, and I bought in plates that had rims. And the food editor, who was also the stylist, said, how can my chicken breasts lie flat on these plates? What did you do to me? Which, you know, I thought, oh, this is a learning moment. <laughs> you know, but then on on another shoot, I was with a food stylist who was like, oh, I'll just make it work. Just show me what you have, you know, and we'll just make it work. Yeah. I like that a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> you got to make uh, do with what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but sometimes you have to run out and get something yeah. <laughs> else. <laughs> um, speaking of just specific props, too, have there been any that have just, like, lasted the test of time? A uh, certain plate, certain dish? Or do you feel like that changes with every season? Um, I think it doesn't change as quickly as as you might think because there isn't that many new things that come around, I think w what you have to do is think of new combinations. But certainly things like Ironstone, I think, will always be a favorite. Um, Mud Australia has these incredible thin-walled plates with beautiful glossy finishes to them. That will always be a favorite. And just having said that, I know that I, I'm always drawn to, to handmade vessels that have a nice powdery finish to them and maybe even a little chip somewhere, you know, that brings character to it. Um, Ultimately, there are some things that work better than others traditionally. Thin glassware. Yes. Always. Takes the light better, too. Um, you but, know, but also a white plate. A white yeah. plate. You know, I mean, really, I mean, it's... A white plates will never ultimate. go out yeah. of style. Right? Yeah. It will always, you know, when it fails, always go back to the white plate. Yeah. Right. Although I have seen food die on white plates, too. And... And and thought, oh, this would have looked so much better on even a deep brown. Yeah, you know. But uh, speaking of the kind of like non-utilitarian approach to certain things, whether it be toys, props, are there any tools that you know the three of you use on set that are non-culinary, you know, tools? Um, and like from the prop aspect, I know we were mm -hmm. talking about like shooting on wood and on gates and on doors. Are there things brought to the table um, that you wouldn't assume in the kitchen? Tweezers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I couldn't do my job without my tweezers. Right. I see all sorts of fun things in, in food stylist kits. Uh, We're the ones with the tools. But yeah. Tweezers are, are the big one. Tweezers yeah. are, are the big one. Q-tips. Q-tips. Yeah. Q-tips. Not a regular kitchen. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, I clean them out in the kitchen. Uh, I don't tell my diners that. Yeah. Um, 
toothpicks. Well, toothpicks. Too, but yeah, I've, used to build up cakes and things. We're we're the ones with the arsenal, the food stylist of uh, things. Things like putty and cubes and. That's true. Right. right. Photographer reflector cards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lego pieces. Yeah. Are you seeing? Are you seeing those tools used more and more on sets today? Or no. there are, these are these are age old and will be here. <laughs> you need them no matter what kind of style or photography I think or uh, propping or anything you're doing. Those are the basics. Things still need to be lifted. Right. Things still need to have light on them. Yeah. You know, no matter how natural it is or or forced it is, those, those basics come into play. Yeah. A spritzer bottle with water to keep things moist. Yeah. yeah. That's an, and monofilament. And, and the big thing is that everything is, no matter what, even though it's built so it's casual and beautiful, it's still built for the camera. Yeah. It's still yes. built to be seen right. by, by the it camera. It has to be seen by the camera. Yeah. What do you mean by that? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, what I mean is that, you know, if you go into a restaurant sometimes and you see, like, the most beautiful food on a plate, it doesn't mean that it's going to photograph well. Yeah. You have to, in a way, you, you construct things so that the camera sees it in the best way possible. I don't know if that's very clear. Oh, no, no, completely. And, but, yeah. but I can't tell you how many times, you know, people are like, look at this food. It's so amazing. And I know that it's, it's really beautiful and there's kind of a realness to it. But it doesn't necessarily translate yeah. when, you, when you put a lens Well, I'm sure if you've tried to photograph plates of food yourself... Uh, and you realize you're like, oh, I, what angle do I need to oh, get yeah. at this yeah. because to make it look good? Yeah, I was actually and, recently uh, this morning shooting for a local company called Brooklyn Slate, and the first thing I realized was mm, slate's kind of thin. So I mean, try getting height off of something that is of that size, and then texturally how it contrasts. We were shooting over at Baked in Red Hook, um, a cake that they had made. Um, hard soft like yeah was thinking about all these different elements while trying to attack that mm-hmm. and and i remember one thing that really made me want to do prop styling and be involved in photography was when i walked into a studio when i worked at apartment life magazine and uh, we were shooting well they were shooting food um i was on staff there and was invited to look at what uh, a food photography session was like and I saw this beautiful setup on the table and my editor said now look through the camera and it was so different because it was a close-up lens and this picture that was at the edge of the shot was cropped into and it just took on a whole other personality and it was like magic you know it was great yeah and speaking of like point of views um where do you see a lot of food photography in both commercial editorial aspects going in the next 10 years is there a new shift happening um i mean i see a lot of process uh, a lot of hands-on a lot of you know realism in the shot nowadays is that still a big part of trying to you know uh, i think i think that that i think that's really true yeah and i think that there's you know wanting to look real you know that something so that the viewer can identify with it and say, "I can make that. I can eat that. This looks yummy." And then I also think that, um, in t- well, in terms of where it, it's going to go, I think that the um, that from the farm is really affecting. You know, just the naturalness, the fact that uh, everybody wants to shop locally. That that's even affecting the big advertising clients. So that there's a lot of pressure to go back to that to try and make the 
images reflect that as well. Compare what a McDonald's burger looks like in their ads now compared to 10 years ago. Yeah. Huge difference. What is the biggest shift? Oh, it looks like it looks far more like what you're getting in the store than what it did. And besides the fact that all of a sudden they're using color, they're using interesting textures. You know, where you know, you shoot um, from bird's eye, shot McDonald's straight down. Yeah, you you would never have done that before, right? So they're they're letting themselves present the burger not just as a final product but as pieces of a product or as like being representative as well you know, little things hanging out you yeah know, a little yeah. bit of onion here or there are lettuce out of place you know that that the way you would get it yeah and, and they want they want the viewer to see the food the same way you see it in the magazine no, yeah. lo- no longer it's just about oh i want that hamburger when you walk in it's about that's a beautiful looking hamburger that's what i want to eat yeah right because in, in the past it was really more like a a catalog shot of it. You know, there was no lighting. Just let's get a picture up there so <laughs> somebody could pick it yeah. out. Well, I mean, weren't there mm-hmm. FDA regulations on how you could food style as well? No. No. Yeah. It's about misrepresentation. Oh, okay. Or misleading the consumer. That's the actual law. Yeah. There are no specific laws that I cannot do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. It's a more general law. Yeah. So, I mean, there are still clients misleading the consumer. Uh, and it's a, it's a very uh, it's a very um, uh, fine line to walk, and something that is the stylist I have to be constantly aware of. Yeah, you know the the most client the majority of clients are very careful and very cautious about not wanting to uh, put themselves into a, a legal quagmire or even go there. So you'd be surprised there. You know, I have to sign lots of affidavits and huh. different things. So you 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 really do have to be careful. Yeah. Yeah, and a, and a prop stylist's best friend is the tape measure because you have to make sure that the depth of a soup plate is a particular depth. Huh. And, you know, it can't be any less than this um, because there was a time where they were getting flatter and flatter so that ingredients could stand up. But we can't do that anymore. I really think that those days of lacquer and spray and, and, and weird things to color are done. Yeah, all that falseness, facadical. Yeah, yeah, that's not happening anymore. Yeah, you know, you get the truth. Yeah, and pretty, pretty much. So. Yeah, and I think that uh, is a good or end. Or verisimilitude. <laughs> yeah, or ver- which yeah, I saw and I had to look up again. I'm like, I know that word somehow. And yeah, verisimilitude. It is verisimilitude. Yeah. Well, you know. You get what you pay for. There's truth in advertising now. Or the appearance of truth. Or the appearance of truth. Um, Not to bring it back to politics. But um, I hope everyone enjoyed their time here. I just wanted to thank Rick, Beth, Francine for coming in. If you get a chance to pick up Gastronomica, do so. Summer 10. Check out the article. It's fantastic. And uh, there is the word verisimilitude in there. Try to find that. Highlight that. And I hope you enjoying listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Thank you again to the Tabard Inn for sponsoring the show. Jack Inslee, our executive producer. And hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.